La femme dangereuse did not speak French, and they know nothing. Womanhood is not a monolith. There are as many ways to be a woman as there are stars in the sky. Trying to pass out a boundary definition for womanhood is like trying to cup the ocean in your hands. Gender isn't real. We are two small bozos from a small island at the bottom of the planet, and you should never take our advice because it will honestly include a lot more murder than is legally encouraged. podcast about dangerous ladies by two harmless ladies. My name is Bonnie Mary Liston. And I'm Emma Skalitsky. And are we that harmless, Emma? Uh, never. I am the most dangerous person in the forest. Which is, um, incidentally, a good segue into our topic today. Bonnie, have you ever been accused of being a witch? Frequently. Me also. What's, what's, uh, give me an anecdote. Um, gosh, hard to be put on the spot like this. I was trapped in a bog for a hundred years once, and when I came out, people did throw around some accusations of witchcraftery. Um, but oh, did they indeed? I mean, I did learn a lot of boggly magics while I was there. Uh, oh yes, useful boggly magics. Mainly mud focused. Uh, not gonna lie. Very nice. Yeah, good for your skin, I hear. Very good for your skin. Even today, I, I'm mistook for someone far younger than 125 years old. You are very youthful. I appreciate that about you. Mm. I was once accused of being a witch by our good friend Lucky's aunt, I believe. Ooh. Yes. Um, as you will recall, Bonnie, I once directed you and several of our friends in a production of Dr. Faustus and did very many kind of witchy things with the advertising, with the aesthetic. I did a lot of research. And then about a year later, I was hanging out with Lucky during a rehearsal for a different show, and he said his aunt was convinced I was a genuine witch. That's that's nice. You know, it shows that you put in the research hours and they paid off. I know, right? But does that mean that Lucky's aunt is a witch, if she could recognise a genuine witch? No, I, I think... Uh, I mean, I don't want to diss Lucky's family. They all seem really, really nice. I think she's religious. Uh a witch hunter. Yeah, yeah. I that, like I don't know her. I've never met her. This is all secondhand. So, Lucky's on if you ever hear this. Um, let's talk. That would explain why Lucky was always asking me if you had like any uh kind of third nipples or strange birthmarks <laughs> and the way he's always trying to prick you with a pin to see if you bleed. I oh, thought that was just a bit That's why he tried to like throw me in a pond one time. Yeah. Lucky's the witch hunter general. It all makes oh, so much sense now. That's why he carries mm. around the Malleus Maleficarum. I thought he was just deep in character uh, three years later as Satan. Yes, Lucky played Satan in our play. I like that he's going to get a call out in every episode we do. Maybe it's a running joke. Maybe. Shout out to Lucky. Now, why are we talking about witches? Well, we are going to talk about our own real and very genuine grandma, Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga is my mother and she raised me and I would also like to kiss her tenderly upon the lips. Um, um, who is Baba Yaga? Who is Baba Yaga? Well, um, shall I start by reading a segment from a Baba Yaga story? That would be delightful. This is a description of Baba Yaga and then we will get into the details. Now, the Baba Yaga was a very fearsome creature. She travelled not in a chariot, not in a coach, but in a cauldron shaped like a mortar which flew along all by itself. 
She rode this vehicle with an oar shaped like a pestle. And all the while she swept out the tracks of where she'd been with a broom made of the hair of a person long dead. And the cauldron flew through the sky with Baba Yaga's own greasy hair flying behind. Her long chin curved up and her long nose curved down and they met in the middle. She had a tiny white goatee and warts on her skin from her trade in toads. Her brown stained fingernails were thick and ridged like roofs and so curled over that she could not make a fist. That is from Clarissa Pinkola Estes uh, adaptation of Vasilis of the Fair. If I may lower the tone for a moment, quite low. Mm-hmm. Matt's you forgive me. Uh, does that mean she could never fist me? She could never fist you, I'm sorry. I mean, she could try, but you might get an infection. In some adaptations of Vasilis of the Fair, she does have spooky ghost hands that do her bidding on occasion, so mm. maybe... Okay, I'd like to abandon this train of thought now. <laughs> quick, get off the boat, get off the boat. Get off the boat. I'd also like to just drop in a quick content warning here. I think mm-hmm. now that you've heard a description of Baba Yaga, it's worth knowing that when we explain who she is and as we talk about her significance, she's quite a violent witch and I support her for it. But we will be discussing ideas of cannibalism. Uh, depending on which stories we discuss, there's also mention of incest in some of them. Love that. Huge content warning. Uh, Freud. Freud will be discussed. Oh, We're going to break out that son of a bitch, Sigmund Freud. Uh, and as we talk about some of the contemporary stuff to do with Baba Yaga, we we might be discussing um, some fairly transphobic ideas as well. So just please bear that in mind and do what is safest and best for you. Yeah. So Baba Yaga is a witch from Slavic folklore and mythology. She is one of the most common and well-known figures from uh, Russian and Slavic mythology, I would say outside of Russia and within Mm. Russia. I was thinking about this in preparation for our recording, Bonnie. I learnt about her from an Anastasia sequel called Bartok the Magnificent, which, like, is a fever dream to me. I don't even remember the actual plot of the film apart from the little bat from Anastasia's in it. But um, I think she's the antagonist, or she ends up helping them, I'm not quite sure, but I just remember the song which I sent to you. It was a banger. I it liked it where she was like, someone's in my house, and she was like jazzing it up. It was great. Yeah, she sings like a cool jazzy song. And then the film opens with this um, chorus going like, Baba Yaga, Baba Yaga, Baba Yaga. And that's all I can remember, really. I mean, I can't believe you're putting yourself on blast for having seen the Anastasia sequel. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> Look. I was like six. I'm not sure I had any uh, say in what I was watching at the time. I mean, Anastasia, the movie, does slap. Oh, man, it's so good. It's a, a, it's terrible on an ideological or historical level, uh, but mm. on a well-made movie scale, oh, yeah. it's incredible. It is rife with American propaganda, but uh, we can still enjoy the fact that Rasputin's song slaps. It slaps so hard. Um, I could not tell you where I first came into uh, kind of the knowledge of Baba Yaga. Actually, I think I might be able to. I was talking about this with mum and my sister when she was younger, she loved the Tashi books. Did you ever read those? Yeah, there's a Baba Yaga meets Tashi one, isn't there? uh, Tashi, he was kind of Eastern European um, in his roots. 
uh, and mm. modern times, but he'd always be talking about how warlords tried to take over his village. Confusing. But I think that Tashi met Baba Yaga, and I think all I really remembered most keenly about her is that she lives in a house with chicken legs. Yeah, so. there's an illustration of her on the front of that book. I I feel like Tashi is straddling the line between, um, like, Middle Eastern and Russian Could folk stories. Kind of the 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 Sino-Russian who's kind of halfway between Asia yeah. and Russia because they share a hugely long border and oh, the kind massive. of blending between their cultures is not something that's overly explored in a lot of places. Which is interesting because um, uh, something that comes up kind of a lot in a lot of our research is that a lot of Baba Yaga stories resemble both Western European and Middle Eastern fairy tales. Um, yes. There's lots of Cinderella narratives, there's flying carpets, there's rules of three, older brothers abandoning younger ones in wells, invisibility cloaks, and even Hansel and Gretel rock up quite a bit. Oh, yes. Baba Yaga is a witch. She lives uh, usually in the forest, definitely far away from civilization, and she lives in a cottage that has chickens' legs feet uh, and that it can move around. It's often, it's almost always not facing you. You have to say, put your back to the forest and your front to me to get the house to pay attention to you. She has a gate, a fence around her house made of human skulls and skeletons. Um, and Stylish. Very stylish. I respect her. And she uh, flies everywhere in a mortar and pestle, uh, which I think is sweet. It's kind of like a riff on the Wicked Witch having a broom. She does sometimes have a broom, as you heard, that she sweeps her tracks away from. But basically, she's mm. in a little rowboat made of kitchen implements. And that's adorable. Yeah, she's just kind of rowing through the sky. She's chill. And um, in her cottage, she has a big oven. She is almost always usually described as with a big nose and bony, skinny legs and iron teeth. Uh, mm. she's usually described as ugly, but what about that? Doesn't sound like a dream woman. Ugliness isn't a real concept. Yeah. Or if it is, it doesn't matter. Uh, and she, uh, often, almost always threatens to eat people, uh, with her great oven. She doesn't always necessarily follow through on that threat though, does she? Oh, no. Absolutely. The greatest thing about Baba Yaga, uh, in my opinion, I, well, actually, I like a lot of things about Baba Yaga, but one of <laughs> the most important things about Baba Yaga is that she's such an ambiguous figure in the stories she appears. She appears in many, many stories. She's kind of a reoccurring character mm. in Russian folklore. And when she appears, uh, she is equally likely to appear as an antagonist, as someone whose desire is to eat the protagonist or steal their girlfriend or whatever they want. Uh, but there is equal chance that the protagonist is on a quest and they run into Baba Yaga and she will help them. Uh, if they show up and they demand hospitality from her, she will usually feed them and give them a bath and then they'll say, I've got to go get something impossible for the Tsar. And she's like, yeah, I know where that is. Yeah, it, it's almost like Baba Yaga is an ambiguous character. She's very ambiguous, a, um, which is really cool. I think because fairy tales can often be quite black and white. Mm. You have these kind of archetypes of the dragon, the wicked witch, the handsome prince and the beautiful princess, the noble peasant mm. girl. Mm. Uh, but we, And there's a lot of work that comes later where we, we mix those up, we reinterpret them, we deconstruct them. But Baba Yaga, from her kind of earlier stories, is already a figure that you can never truly predict how she's going to factor into the story. It, yes, she's very 
I think the right term would be mercurial. It depends on the time of day and her mood. Um, there's an academic called Vladimir Prop, and he basically defines most characters in Russian mythology as either a villain or a donor. But Baba Yaga is both, sometimes at the same time. So he calls her the hostile donor. Some other interesting things about Baba Yaga uh, comes from her name. Mm. So she's called Baba Yaga. Um, and effectively, this sort of translates to old lady, but not exactly. If you say Baba Yaga uh, to a Russian or a Czech or anyone from the general Slovakian region, they will know that you are speaking about an old woman. Uh, but due to the linguistic differences between those regions over time and the fact that it's such an old name, we're not exactly sure uh, what it's intended to be. The word Baba uh, can mean midwife, sorceress or fortune teller. It can mean old woman. In modern Russian, it's also a slang word for an effeminate or timid young man. Mm -hmm. um, and Yaga has no clear kind of modern word that it's most attached to but the words that it sounds like or is similar to uh like in serbian and croatian it's horror and shudder in slovenian it's anger in czech it's witch and in sanskrit as snake there is some hypothesis that it's serpentine is somewhere in her origin though it doesn't really seem to reflect it in any iconography mm. um babiaga rhymes obviously it's a fun word to say uh and they are both uh, babble word. Most babies around the world, when they're first learning to talk, they will say Baba. Yes, it's kind of this fascinating thing they've noticed in linguistics that the sounds that it's easiest for babies to make that babies start making earliest, like Baba, Mama, Papa, are these sounds have this habit of meaning the same thing in every language or having very similar sounding words meaning the exact same thing in many different languages, languages that are not related at all, that don't share common roots. And these are the words for family members. You will, across a whole range of languages, find the word mama associated with mothers, uh, but there is also baba, like uh, which can mean father or grandmother. And it's kind of one of those chicken and egg situations. Mm. Uh, do all our words represent this? Because babies make these sounds first and the parents and the people who are around them say, oh, that's me. Yeah, obasan means grandma in Japanese. Mm. Um, and baba is Serbo-Croatian for uh, grandmother. And it is most definitely probably where babushka, which is grandmother for grandmother for Russian, Russian for yeah, grandmother comes from. Yeah. Babushka, 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, which does make it a little wild that Kate Bush is like, I am writing secret romance letters to my husband. My alter ego will be grandma. Babushka. <laughs> Maybe he was into milfs. We don't know. But um, Baba can also be considered quite insulting. Yeah. Um, there's actually a, a comparative Japanese kind of hag character called Yamauba. And Yamauba even sounds like Baba Yaga. Mm more of that kind of Asian-Russian crossover that we mentioned before, maybe. I mean, mm. like the interactions. It's quite hard to trace Yamauba. Um, there's a lot of evidence that uh, some of the villages where the stories crop up um, when uh, people became kind of old and a burden on the community and contracted certain diseases, they would be driven out into the woods. I think that's a story that tends to happen 
a lot around the world. When there are old people without family, they they suffer very badly across history. Mm. But one of the most remarkable traits of humanity, which traces all the way back to kind of Homo, whatever's before sapien, Australopithecus, that two semesters of anthropology pays off, uh, <laughs> is that you see these older skeletons uh, residing in communal graves. They have broken limbs. They are showing signs of arthritis and other age disease. Uh, but they are kept with people because we recognize the value of older people. Mm. There's a lot of veneration. But it's interesting because there's sometimes, and it obviously depends on the person's background, their family, their experiences, uh, especially older women tend to straddle a, a um, tenuous state between respect and hatred. Yes. You slip out of the social safety net uh, that is supposed to protect you in your old age. You can find yourself very vulnerable and alone. Mm. And I think that's where Baba Yaga herself lived. But rather than being vulnerable, she kind of owns it in a really strange way. Yes. Um, Baba Yaga is sometimes a mother and presumably at some point a grandmother. She has daughters that will show up. Uh, sometimes they are just kind of her minions. They will do what she says. Uh, sometimes she you know, kills people's wives or turns them into ducks so they'll have to marry their daughters. Uh, but sometimes they are kind of witches and women who are out in the world as people. So she's not necessarily a terrible mother, uh, but that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, in some of the stories, when people meet Baba Yaga, they actually meet her and her name's um, Yagisna or Yagashina. I'm not quite sure on the pronunciation of that. I do apologize. But it actually is a, a, it's a patronomical term. If you meet Yagisna, she's the daughter of Baba Yaga. But interestingly, Baba Yaga has never had a husband. No. In any written text. She does not seem overly fond of them. No, not at all. Um, there's a, an amazing fairy tale scholar called Jack Zipes, and he describes her as a parthenogenic mother, which is like a, I guess, a scientific term, which means reproducing without fertilization or self fertilization. Like the frogs in Jurassic Park. Yeah, or like snails. I thought snails had sex. I thought that snails had a penis that was like a love dart that they could shoot at other snails. Don't they? Isn't it optional, though? Can't they just self-fertilize if they need to? I'm not sure. I'm not an expert on snails. There are possibly many kinds of snails. <laughs> um, it's also possible. This was a theory that was just brought up in a long list of theories uh, that one author I was reading was discussing. So it's not necessarily like a, a mainstream theory or anything. But I thought it was interesting. He was saying it's possible that um, Baba Yaga is a euphemistic name, like the fates, uh, sometimes called the Furies or the Kindly Ones, that kind of grandmother sinister, which you could sometimes translate it to, would be a euphemism for whatever Baba Yaga's real name was that is then lost over time. I definitely feel like it's not like we can come down and say that one particular meaning is uh, has more credence than another. It almost seems like the name is the result of a thousand different meanings and terms and sounds and puns from across I the street. I absolutely agree. There's no definitive meaning behind it. Um, but what I thought was so interesting about that is the same thing uh, happened to the word bear. Uh, we have no idea what the original word for bear is because bear <laughs> really? is, um, yeah, bear is from Russian and it's like the brown one because they were afraid to say the name of bears because it was said that that would attract bears. Um, and now the word is lost and the word for bear is a euphemism for bear. So if you ever think about bears, they'll know. 
and they'll find you. If you discovered the true name of a bear, you would you never would be the same. You would have the power. Bears are actually the original fairies. Maybe. When we're looking at all the different etymologies of Baba Yaga, one of my favourite ones that came up was um, looking at Yaga. There are Lithuanian and Latvian terms. Um, they're spelt E-N-G-T-I, and the Latvian one is I-G-T, and they both suggest uh, a kind of sensation, and that's this kind of suffocating, creeping sensation. And it's specifically used to describe female spirits settling upon people during sleep and producing a feeling of suffocation by weight. And what's that, Bonnie? It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. Sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis. So Baba Yaga is a sleep paralysis demon, apparently. Like Queen Mab. Love that. Another interesting thing about Baba Yaga that suggests it could be more of a title than a given name mm. is that there are lots of Baba Yagas. I mean, not only does she appear in many, many different tales, but sometimes in tales you'll get usually three uh, Baba Yaga appearing separately. Mm. They they sometimes sisters or cousins, uh, but they are all called Baba Yaga. There's like a bit in East of the Sun, West of the Moon where she meets three old women on the way to rescue her bear husband. I can't remember if the version I read she was they were called Baba Yagas, but they definitely have the same role. I mean... That's a Russian tale, isn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. It's I don't kind of northern. Quote I me think on that, it but be like Scandinavian mm. or something. Um, and then sometimes Baba Yaga's killed at the end of a story, and then she does not stop her showing up again. Yeah, never. She doesn't care. There's a cool quote by Jack Zipes about that. Can I read it out? Go if you like. He says, "A Baba Yaga may at times be killed, but there are always others who take her place." Baba Yaga holds the secret to the water of life and may even be Mother Earth herself. This is why Baba Yaga is very much alive today, and not only in Mother Russia, but also throughout the world. So Baba Yaga is almost kind of this omniscient title. A many-headed thing. It mm. could be a title, and for that reason there is sometimes uh question with translators whether it should be capitalized or lowercase is it mm. the baba yaga or a baba yaga uh which i like it suggests that you could become a baba yaga you know like a buddha if oh. you achieve enlightenment in being a witch um but i i'd say that the thing is that even though she appears so often she's probably the same character no, well I don't know how to say this. She's always described the same and has the same. I know like, what you mean. It's sort of like no, how we have a uh, hundred thousand stories about Jack the Giant Killer, mm. and uh, uh, you know, it, it's impossible that Jack has had so many adventures. But they always seem a little bit the same. And to be honest, it's the same with Ivan or Ivanushka in Russian fairy tales as well. There'll be um, Ivan. Everyone's uh, named Ivan. Yeah, everyone's named I Ivan, and Babiaga has to deal with a hundred different Ivans at different times. Yeah, and for sometimes they have titles like this, Ivan who is young in years and old in wisdom or something. He was pretty cool. Mm, and there's Ivan the Fool as well. Ivan the Fool, Ivan and the Brave. Ivan Zarevich, who is basically a prince. Prince Ivan, yeah. Mm. Um, and Vasilisa, there's Vasilisa the Fair. Uh, Vasilisa the Wise, Vasilisa the Beautiful. The yeah. Beautiful. Uh, but what interested me about this, we were talking about it. I think we made a joke about how. Oh, the collective noun for Ivan is a nuisance. 
<laughs> but I was kind of thinking about this and I was like, the closest that we would have to that in kind of the Western uh, folklore compendium is Jack. You find a lot of Jacks. There's Jack and the Beanstalk. Uh, Jack jumps over the candlestick. Jack and Jill mm-hmm. go up the hill. Uh, it comes up a lot. It's a, a good default protagonist name. Uh, and then I was reading that Ivan is the kind of Russian for John. Uh, oh, there you go. Everything gets back to Jesus in the end. Yeah, it's also the default in German fairy tales, usually that Hans shows up a Yeah, lot. clever Hans. And then Jack is, yeah, diminutive John. So everyone is, you know, Johan. <laughs> all the way back. All the way back to our John's first John's all the way down. It's John's all the way down. Um, so... To get back to Baba Yaga, it's interesting because I would say Baba Yaga is grandma's all the way down. Definitely. I think the first time that Baba Yaga is mentioned in print is in 1755 in Mikhail the Lomonosov's Russian grammar, uh, where he collected a lot of Russian folk tales and traditions mm-hmm. in which Baba Yaga appears in two stories already kind of showing off that she is not contained to any specific tale. Mm. Uh, obviously she's much, much older than 1755. She mm. is uh, from the folkloric tradition, which means that for many centuries uh, she would have existed mainly in oral retellings uh, from illiterate populaces. Yeah. Now a hundred years after that, we get, um, two major folktale compendiums in Russia. Um, Alexander Nikolaevich, uh, um, let's get this right, Afanasev. So, Alexander Nikolaevich Afanasev's Russian folk tales, uh, which was written across um, 1855 to 1866. And then Ivan Alexandrovich Kudayakov's Great Russian Tales, which is 1860 to 1862. And they're both some of the first massive compendium of folk tales. And Kudayakov himself actually went out and collected oral stories from villages all across Russia. So we get a huge, broad range. Um, however, uh, particularly in the, the 18th and 19th centuries, these three writers really struggled to get stuff published because there was um, a huge amount of censorship over folk tales because they weren't Christian, they weren't religious. Mm. However, um, whilst these three men particularly struggled to get folk tales published, by the end of the 19th century, folk tales became a huge source of interest for intellectuals and a kind of a... Um, a massive centre of, of nationalistic pride um, because they started to re- uh, represent um, symbols of rich tradition, basically. That makes sense because that was the time period in which Russia was basically reinventing itself, the kind of 19th century where they had to end mm. serfdom and kind of become a, a modern nation. Mm. I'm embarrassing myself with my Russian knowledge there, but uh, in times of upheaval or reinvention, mm. Countries will often go back to folk tales and old parts of their culture and try and cling tight to them, but also often try and reinvent them to suit a, a new narrative. Yeah. Did that happen again at any point? <laughs> it's happened loads, and not just in Russia. Um, lots of different countries will at different times. As you said, during times of upheaval, they'll basically kind of um, retroactively um, enrich the vibrancy of pre-existing traditions. So this did happen again in Russia. Um, In the 1960s and 70s, there was a massive kind of burst of Soviet-era fantasy films. 
and you might be thinking, what on earth does that have to do with Baba Yaga? She appeared in most I'm of them. That sounds gross. Yeah. Good, oh man. So these are some of my favorite films. Um, there's a, a really great one called Morozko. In English, it's called Father Frost. Um, it was made in 1964, which is the year my mum was born. Um, and it's basically a collage of like a heap of the most famous Russian folk stories. Um, interestingly, Baba Yaga appears in the last like third of Morozko, and she's just a kind of comedic villain. She's um, is she a villain or is she a donor? No, she's a villain. She's very much a villain. They they lean into the Sleeping Beauty stuff. She puts a curse on um, the protagonist, um, Nastinka, and she falls into a death-like sleep. And then guess who comes along? Ivan. <gasps> My boy. Ivanushka, Sorry. yeah. Um, a guy called Georgi Mila plays Baba Yaga, and he actually played her like five times across different fantasy films in Russia. So he's pretty much like the canon 20th century Baba Yaga. The reason I bring this up is these fantasy films are great fun, but they were kind of part of a, I guess, a propaganda machine that was trying to, again, enrich the, the cultural vibrancy of Russia, which is very vibrant, don't get me wrong. But the reason they were doing that in the 60s and 70s is uh, the Cold War is happening. They want to look uh, appealing to outsiders, but they also are dealing with a lot of um, dissent and unhappiness within Russia. So if you kind of remind people of the amazing folk tales and the traditions, people get nostalgic and proud of their country. And Yes, you see very similar things happening uh, in the uh, Italy under fascism. They were very keen in uh, resurrecting the Roman tradition, the classical Roman mm, tradition, mm -hmm. despite uh, many years breakage with that culturally. Uh, and in Germany mm. under, you hate to say it, uh, <laughs> Hitler, though a lot of that was having to reconstruct an identity because Germany as a country was only a couple of years, a couple of decades old at that point. Yeah. They did kind of draw on Germanic tradition. Uh, you know, how art and stories are often used as tools of propaganda is I was kind of passing this theory out with my housemates and my housemate Thomas said, ah, so she's technically Baba USSR. And I spat out my drink. It was a very funny joke. That is a funny joke. I'm glad you gave him credit, though I, I thought we were going to steal it. We'll just steal it for ourselves, like Baba yes. Yaga would. And I look, I have More to like, say... But wait, wait, let, let me give you a clean reading for when we steal it. More like Baba USS Aga. Hey, I've never heard that joke before. Me neither. Please. I mean, I invented it. You, It's yours. Sorry, Thomas. I'm not sorry. Um, yeah, it's always very complicated to talk, particularly I find about um, the idea of the beautiful folk stories can be co-opted for uh, numerous different causes. I don't think Babiago would have enjoyed being an arm of the state. At no, all. she's she's quite anti-authoritarian, Babiago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure she would have loved Marxism. Having said that. I think she Maybe. Um, well, it was interesting. The article that we were reading about Jill Terry Rudy and Jaram Lyle McDonnell, mm. uh, which is mostly unrelated to us. It's about the monster of the week formation, but they were talking about Baba Yaga's presence as a monster of the week in modern stories. Mm. Um, and the, the main thing I wanted to mention from that was they mentioned the idea that studying folklore is quite difficult academically because 
uh, folklore is intrinsically unstable. Mm. Uh, it's something that spreads from people to people. It changes over time. It changes between tellings. And it can be used like this as a part of the state. But equally, uh, it cannot be properly controlled by the state. Because as you mentioned earlier, during the 18th century, where Russia was quite orthodox and trying to stamp out uh, folklore um, in, in place of Christianity, they couldn't do it because folklore is very slippery. Mm, indeed. I mean, it's kind of like what we talked about last week with the idea of the palimpsest, that things get co-opted and written over and erased and written over and written over and written over. And if you could scrape them back, like, uh, this is going to make me sound like a real wanker, but like a lithography stone. I went to art school. Lovely. Um, you could get a hundred thousand meanings all laid on top of each other and used by different people. Mm. And there's no... Baba Yaga in particular, there's no original story of Baba Yaga. There's no mm. definite canonical version because that is lost to time. There are even theories that uh, Baba Yaga was once an ancient deity in the Russian region. Uh, mm. Long before kind of we have a, a strong history of that region uh, who has mutated over time to become this kind of still quite powerful but uh folkloric witch figure yeah she's almost a not quite a hedge witch she's still very powerful i also but... wanted to call her a hedge witch she does like trees is the thing mm. in um vasilis of the fair or vasilasa the fair um she actually has three i they're kind of her children also her servants but three sons and literally the sun it's the dawn the day and the evening and i'm pretty sure they're called bright dawn red sun and black night mm. in the version i read people out there might have read different version uh, versions and they'll be like no not at all that's not their names but she um she'll send these um riders on horses out in cloaks and as they ride out the time of day will change yes she is capable of these these grand almost unlimited scales of magic she can or she is somehow responsible for the, the turning of the sun in the day. Um, but she is also defeated sometimes by like a mountain <laughs> or really her own attention span is the only thing that can do. Yeah. I, I would argue that she gets bored and gives up. Mm. Um, uh, but that's actually a great segue. Uh, I think we wanted to discuss a couple of kind of Baba Yaga tales. So our listeners can get a sense of what she's up to usually. And I think a really good one to start with is Vasilisa, Vasilisa the Fair. Mm. Uh, if you would like to regale us with the tale. Of course. Um, I'm reaching into my memory for this one. I don't have it written down in front of me. But um, it's okay. the classic. Just like folklore, it's being told from memory orally. Yeah, I'm palimpsesting it myself. Say is wrong. But um, Vasilisa, her mother passes away. In some versions, as her mother is is dying, she calls Vasilisa to her and says, "Take this doll. Um, it's my spirit, and it will it will protect you when I'm no longer there." And Vasilisa is like, "Okay, mum, that I don't know what to do with this information. Love please you very die. much. Please don't die." Tragically, her mother passes away. Um, her father's grieving. He's lonely, and he's also worried that his daughter is going to be lonely as well without. Um, you know, a, a motherly figure to guide her. So he remarries, but as is the kind of classic case in a lot of fairy tales, maybe we should do this an episode on this sometime, by the way. Um, evil stepmother comes along. Yes. And along with the evil stepmother is the evil stepsister. 
who is boorish and lazy. She's mean. And the father proves himself to be quite a, a loving but weak figure. He is kind of in the thrall of the stepmother and he, he's often going away. He's a merchant, which leaves um, Vasilisa at the mercy of her cruel stepmother and stepsister. Dare I say a real cuck. Yeah. A real cuck, did you say? Oh no. They often put Vasilisa to impossible tasks. And she's out on the farm one day crying because she cannot possibly get all her tasks complete. When she feeds the little doll, which is something her mother advised her to do, and the little doll starts talking to her. It comforts her, it speaks in the voice of her mother, and then it goes about, it tells her to rest, and it does all her jobs for her. Over the next few weeks and months, whenever she's struggling, whenever she can't possibly complete all the jobs set to her by her stepmother and stepsister, she feeds the little, little doll, and it jumps up, comforts her, and then it goes and does the jobs for her. Eventually, her stepfamily, who are obviously quite toxic people, get really, really sick of this. They can't figure out how she's doing it, and they decide they need to get rid of her. She's lovely, she's beautiful, she's kind, she's patient, all those classic fairy tale qualities. Oh yeah, in the version I read, they said that they put her to work trying to make her stressed and haggard and ugly, but yeah. with every task, she grew more and more beautiful. Love that. It was a really great phrase my translator used. He's like, uh, a couple of times when he's talking about beautiful women, he was like, it can neither be um, described nor told, only seen. So he's just like, forget about it. Yeah. She's hot. Now, um, when her stepmother and stepsister basically have had enough of this, she's so lovely. They're like, God damn, let's just kill her. And they they uh, put out all the lights in their little hut in this village and they say, oh no, we're in the dark, we can't possibly survive. You need to go and find Baba Yaga and ask for a light. And Vasilisa is like, um, what? I would prefer not to. Yeah, that sounds like a death sentence. And the stepmother's like, go and do it. In some versions, she actually says, go to my mother, Baba Yaga, and pick up the light. Which, Baba Yaga's got a lot of babes. Yeah, Baba Yaga's related to everyone. So off Very uh, Russian. Vasilisa goes and she keeps little doll with her who comforts her along the way. And as she's going out, she sees a man in a bright white coat. And as she sees him, the sun rises. She carries on. She sees a rider in a bright red cloak. Then it hits midday. She carries on through the dark forest. Evening starts to hit the land and... A man in a dark black coat goes past her. Around about this time, as the sun set, she finds a hut in the woods. It's facing away from her. She calls out. What does she say, Bonnie? She says, turn your back to the forest and your front to me. And there's a, there's a chanting bit at the front, but it's always rendered in Russian for mm. authenticity, so I cannot read that for you. I will not even try, dear listeners. Look fair. Now, the hut then rises on two large yellow-clawed chicken legs and turns around to face her. In some versions, there's also a gate made out of bones. She goes and she knocks on the door of Baba Yaga. Baba Yaga will let her in, threaten to eat her, and then say, No, you know what, all right, I'll, I'll give you a light, but you have to prove your worth. So you're going to work for me. Every day I'll give you a task. I'll go out. When I come back in the evening, if you don't complete it, I'll eat you. Fair terms. Mm, look, I'd sign that contract. 
but um, I'd also hope that I had a magic doll with the spirit of my mother imbued in it. Otherwise, I'd be in big trouble. If I had a magic doll with the spirit of my mother imbued in it, who had previously shown a propensity for fulfilling impossible tasks, I would be like, hells yeah, Baba Yaga. <laughs> yeah, of course, Baba Yaga. But basically, next day, Baba Yaga sets an impossible task. Sometimes it's separating out all the grain that she has, or it's you know, trying to put the moon in a cup, those sorts of massive impossible things. Every time um, Vasilis is set with an impossible task, she'll feed her little doll, it will comfort her, and then it will complete it herself. Baba Yaga gets pretty, pretty irritated by this, I would say, by the last day. She's like, how are you doing this? And Vasilis says, my mother's blessing, and Baba Yaga is like, gross, that's disgusting, get out of here. But you did complete my terms. I didn't set the specifics. Here is a skull lit with fire. Take it back to your stepmother and stepsister and they will get what they deserve. So off she goes on a merry way. There's some amazing illustrations of Vasilisa with this flaming skull. Um, Ivan Biblin is probably the most famous, um, most famous person to illustrate this story. She carries on a merry way, gets back to her house and her stepmother and stepsister are tearing their hair out in the dark. And when they see this skull, they're greedy and they start grabbing at it. But as soon as the light hits their fingers, they catch on fire, burst into flame, and are gone in an instant. Love that. And then she buries the skull in the backyard because she's like, this does murder people, so no. And what I love about this story is at the end, they're like, and she did marry a prince. It's like, yeah. never come up. She doesn't, it's not even like he shows up earlier in the story like, oh, what a beautiful, it's just like, after that, she's just chilling, and then she marries a prince. And you're like, mm. good for you, Vasilisa. It's like a little epilogue. Yeah, she deserved it. Now, I read an incredible commentary on the version of this story that I read, which I do not have in front of me. I did not save it because it was not very interesting commentary. <laughs> uh, but I have no doubt it was written by a man. Because it's like, Baba Yaga's confusing and mercurial nature doesn't make any sense. If she had the power over the sun the day and the night oh, why God. did she use such a violent method to free vasilisa from her evil stepfamily because why not and it's like and it's like baba yaga wants to set people on fire that's her style yeah and i can't put a bird I in think a cage there's an, there's an assumption there that baba yaga is a fairy godmother which you know like maybe the fairy godmother's based off these sorts of figures I mean, but she's not similar to cinderella in many ways oh yeah it's a stepmother motif uh, mm. Often to go to the ball, Cinderella is asked to do very similar tasks, like separate seeds or stuff like that. Mm. Um, and obviously they do die horribly at the end, and then she marries a prince, however tacked on that seems. But uh, Baba Yaga does not want to help Vasilisa. Vasilisa has to go and ask for help and kind of really work the hell out of Baba Yaga yeah. to receive help in the end. I think this is really important to emphasize because fairy tales serve purposes in their telling. And one of the purposes, if, if you live in hardship, if you live in poverty, you use these stories to navigate the difficulties of your life. So Baba Yaga is blunt and brutal, but she's not necessarily evil. And I would say that's because what life was like for these people. So she's a symbol of survival in a way because she encourages qualities that will help you survive in hard times. There's a quote by Jack Zipes. You mind if I read it Go out? It. Baba Yaga is the ultimate tester and judge, the desacralized omnipotent goddess who defends deep-rooted pa uh, Russian pagan values and wisdom and demands that young women and men demonstrate that they deserve her help. But what Baba Yaga also defends are qualities that the protagonists need to survive and adapt in difficult situations. 
such as perseverance, kindness, obedience, integrity, and courage. Yeah. It snaps all around, right? He also Mm. says as well that people should not delude themselves that there is an easy way to reconcile conflicts. So while she's brutal as all hell, she kind of can be seen as a sign of hope in a lot of these stories because whilst it's not easy, she will give you your own means to get out of difficult situations. Yeah, instead of being, I mean, a lot of, I would say, fairy tales from our kind of Western canon would say that to get help from uh, a witch or a fairy or a mysterious old man, the, the primary kind of rewarding action is to be kind to be kind and sweet um Mm. but in the russian stories what you you see rewarded is being forthright Mm. and i don't want to say hard working because that sounds like oh hard working but like i indefatigable yeah Uh, it's like having integrity even if it's impossible you try as hard as you can to complete it even if it seems pointless you go to the witch who you know will try and kill you. You ask her for help. You complete the tasks to the best of your ability and then you are rewarded. Mm. It's an interesting kind of cultural difference. Mm. And I think it's it's very much a class thing as well. Like mm. classic talk about class with regards to Russia. But um, in Western Europe, like our fairy tales were pretty brutal until they got sanitized by, um, you know, upper classes. So... I think it's fair to say the niceness of fairy tales tends to reflect the easiness of the life of the tellers, if that makes sense. Yes, I. that does make sense. Mm. So uh, one of the kind of authors who I read the most about and who seems quite a kind of premier scholar on Baba Yaga as a character and especially in terms of like the Russian culture uh, is Andreas John. Um, and in his uh Baba Yaga and the Russian Mother which is a hell of a uh piece had a lot going on but one thing he mentions is that um Baba Yaga is never the protagonist of any of these stories she is always a supporting character she is someone that the protagonist faces on their journey Mm. um and she is always almost always depicted as the other uh in many ways for example one of the things that she often says is like I smell Russian blood, uh, which suggests that she herself is not Russian, Uh, that she, despite being a character most notably associated with Russia and talked about in Russia, is from some other place. That's interesting you say that because the interpretation I read in the Jack Zipes one, uh, it's interesting she smells Russian blood because he interprets it as her being so tied to the Russian land that she knows their blood instantly. Damn, look at that. Um, well, I don't think he's talking about another country so much as another place because he goes on to say uh, that her the location of her dwelling is in the forest on the way to another realm. Mm. And he associates it with the underground realm or the realm of death. It's classic as well. So many fairy tales. The dark forest is that otherworldly place you don't go. The liminal space where magic is possible the separation from civilized tame society where people are around and in the forest you are alone uh Mm. you are vulnerable to wolves or whatever your native uh, species of uh predator is and the people that you meet there they live out of society they Mm. are crazy old witches and grandmothers and woodcutters and whatnot Mm. um so he associates her he says that she may be a guardian at the gateway of the land of the dead, kind of 
perhaps if not a psychopomp and someone who is um, associated with death uh, and bringing people back from the dead. As you said earlier, she controls the water of life. There are some heroes that, as happens a lot in Russian folk stories, are murdered halfway through. Yeah. They can be brought back to life if they have the right allies made earlier. Yeah. Um, um, forgive me if I get this wrong, but in Maria Marevna, Ivan is chopped into little pieces, isn't he? Yes, he is. He accidentally releases Koshe the Deathless. Koshi. Koshi the Deathless uh, by giving him three buckets of water to drink. Uh, and then Koshe, she rewards him by stealing his wife. Um, because she's actually like a totally badass warrior uh, queen. Mm. Um, but so he tries to get his wife back three times. They run away together and every time they are caught. And Koshe says, I will allow you to live because you saved my life only three times but the boy's like i would rather have a couple of hours with you on the run than live forever which is quite romantic uh and then the third time koshe does chop him up but fortunately he let his sister marry these three bird wizards and they uh resurrect him and then he goes to baba yaga to get a horse faster than koshe's um and then uh he runs away with her again it's time when koshe catches up to him his horse beats him to death <laughs> I mean, this is a trend in Russian fairy tales that kind of is about Baba Yaga, which is that you have these awesome. heroes, these Ivans, mostly. Um, a nuisance of Ivans. They don't do anything. They are constantly set with these impossible tasks, and then they're like, oh, man, what a pickle I'm in. And then their wife or their horse or a frog or Baba Yaga is like, don't cry, man. I'll solve it for you. So they're just nice guys i guess and uh, yeah they're polite they are kind of useless they don't kill anyone who asks them not to because they might come in useful later uh mm. we have to assume they're hot oh god they must be like be. whatever your whatever your like subjective definition of hot is they must meet it because... and i guess they must be good with horses horses come up a lot yeah, we were reading some of the Firebird stories because Baba Yaga appears in quite a few of those. Um, and there's one iteration where this archer does effectively not a lot, but uh, keeps getting in shenanigans with the king. And then to get out of shenanigans, his horse will solve the problem. Yeah, and it was just like a normal horse. It, I mean, obviously had magic powers, but it was his horse at the beginning. Yeah, he didn't find this horse. It was just the horse he'd always had. Convenient, that. really. Another motif you see a lot in Russian uh, folk tales is that the czar or the king or the head of authority is constantly making impossible and unreasonable tasks. And if you say that's kind of impossible and unreasonable, he says, do it or I'll kill you. So I think that says something <laughs> about uh, Russian uh, relationship with authority. <laughs> I mean, yeah, all things psychological in the end. Yes. Speaking of that, uh, Baba Yaga is a folktale she folk tales are commonly kind of analyzed through kind of larger mm, are we sliding into freud now psychological readings yes we are and one oh, thing Lord. that kind of led to some conflict uh in our pre-show discussion is that emma and i are while sisters in in soul and mind and heart are from kind of different academic backgrounds in that yeah. uh, I am a historian uh, for the most part of my kind of academic training. Uh, but Emma is uh, from the, the English 
domain. Yeah, I'm a literary theorist and a playwright. I did my honours degree in um, folkloric adaptations and playwriting. So we found ourselves in these long cyclical discussions where we were kind of agreeing with each other, but like, you don't use my terminology. I swear to God, I'll strike you down where you <laughs> Yeah, uh, this is not about Freud specifically. But we were talking about how most mythologies and folkloric beliefs, neo-paganism, and the um, there was like this group of historians called the Ritual... Ca- ca- what were they called? The, the, the Ritualistic... Ritualistics or whatever they're called. Thank you. Um... But they, oh man, I'm annoyed. I can't remember exactly what wow. they're called. The there is Cambridge movement, Ritualists, I think it was. There is this movement in the 18th, mainly the 19th and mm-hmm. early 20th century uh, where people decided they were going to go back to kind of the, the pagan roots of culture that had been lost by the spread of Christianity. It, unfortunately, these people were all quite creative and interesting people. They were terrible historians. They invented what is effectively mm. neo-paganism and the roots of Wiccanism, which if we have listeners who are Wiccanism, I'm not here to yuck your yums. It can be quite an interesting and fulfilling spiritual practice. It is ahistorical to a degree, which is very frustrating to me. Um, and I don't necessarily mm. care if things are accurate, but when people claim things are older than they are or they claim mishistorical origins, it pisses me off. So what a lot of these folklorists did is they came up with ideas about folklore and ways to categorize it which they then applied back onto history uh in ways that frustrate me in particular yes so we started talking about the maiden mother crone thing which is absolutely a neo-pagan thing and um i completely agree that it's a historical but i was saying i still think it's quite a useful tool because uh like we were saying folklore is a palimpsest so it can be really, really useful to break down and understand ancient cultures and and stories in the with these kind of contemporary archetypes. Um, I tend to come at it from a, a Jungian kind of angle, which is just basically like archetypes and interpretation of dreams, that kind of like very poetic stuff. I get a bit frustrated with the, um, I mean, rich of me to say so because I can't even remember what they're called <laughs> and I read all about them last year, but the um, Cambridge Ritualists because I I also don't quite like the way they argue that a lot of their theories are fact. Like they had a lot of stuff about how a lot of the Greek myths were obviously based on rituals about coming of age, but there's not a lot of evidence that that's the case. But I still quite like Maiden Mother Crone because I think you see it a lot and it might be us retroactively looking for it, but I still think it's pretty cool. Well, in one thing you said there, you said about understanding stories and cultures. I think it can be very useful for understanding stories and shaping stories and creating stories. But if you are applying it to a culture where it was not present, you are misunderstanding the culture. Mm. I mean, not you, Emma Skalitsky. Uh, yes, thank you very much. Academic, mm. uh, but people in general. I'm a name and shame them. I've got the page open. So this is one of my favorite books of all time. <laughs> it's not necessarily a purely academic text. It's called The Folklore of Discworld, and it's a compilation by Terry Pratchett and Jacqueline Simpson, who is an academic uh, and folklorist. Uh, which he'd written mm-hmm. about kind of the wealth of resource, resources and research that he compiled over the many decades he spent writing the Discworld books, which are obviously mm. made of an amalgamation of uh, Earth folklore. In terms of the uh, mother maiden crone, he says it's just over 100 years old, actually, in Earth terms. William Shakespeare's witches were all of the same age. So were the three fates, the three norms, the three graces, and the three mothers in early Britain, and the three war goddesses in Ireland and other female in old mythologies. It was in mm. 1903 the Cambridge scholar 
named Jane Ellen Harrison decided that all the many goddesses in ancient religions could be tidily sorted out into the three aspects of one great earth goddess, the maiden, the mother, and a third she did not name. She was mainly interested in the first two. So was her colleague, Sir James Fraser, uh, who thought that they were a mother and daughter pair, like Demeter and Persephone in Greece. The first writer Mm. to pay much attention to the third one was the magician Alistair Crowley, who called her the crone and identified her with the sinister Hecate, uh, a Greek goddess Mm. of darkness and black magic. Um, This then took root in the mind of the poet Robert Graves. Um, And so the Mm. idea grew. Which is actually interesting to think that even in the original idea of the triumvirate, they were still discounting the crone. She can't catch a fucking break. All of this to say as well, Baba Yaga is defined as the crone. Well, Baba Yaga is an older, yes, a a crone figure, as in she is a prominent uh, folkloric figure that is always described as old and has the iconography of like a hag or a wicked old witch. And it was interesting Mm. what started us on this conversation uh, was the idea that I was saying I couldn't think of many goddesses who were crones. You find a lot of kind of mythological and folkloric figures who are crones. But when someone is kind of being properly worshipped, they tend to be kind of younger or this this age of... There's lots of crones in Irish mythology, though. I would Um... like to respect the Irish for that. But definitely, definitely there are crone goddesses. I was just saying I'm disappointed Mm. that it's quite an odd thing to encounter rather than the default. Like you'll you'll always find a thunder god, but a crone goddess is more of an anomaly. Yeah, I think historically when particularly women reach a certain age, they're no longer cared for so much like you said earlier they slip through the net of societal protection and i think that also counts for what people value in storytelling and it's interesting that when the old woman shows up she's a villain she's a scary old witch Mm. Uh, which is something i think we talked about a lot in the discussion of this topic uh the idea that an old female is kind of scorned and villainized and this is kind of into the entire idea of the wicked old witch and the cause of this is of course the patriarchy always always comes down to that because old women have and do to this day actually serve not like serve a major function as in their existence is dependent upon something they give us but they are these great resources of wisdom and knowledge and strength and support uh to women and particularly throughout Mm. history this has often been kind of in terms of Uh, support throughout a woman's life in things like medicine in things like uh, midwifery but also raising children especially when that was done more communally you would have old women around who could tell you the things you don't know when you're a new mother how to breastfeed uh, how to change a child Mm. what diseases to look out for things like that Uh, but the other side of this is obviously abortion and one of the things that you often find associated with witchcraft is kind of herb craft and poisons the word uh, witchcraft in Greek is pharmacopion, which is where we get pharmacy and the idea of drugs, uh, because to them, using drugs and using poisons was a kind of magic. This is not universal. This is a very Greek idea. Uh, but from this, you, a lot of the women who were demonized, uh, and this has uh, been very much taken away from by feminist authors in the 60s and 70s, but a lot of the women accused of witchcraft were often kind of healers and women who could provide abortifactants, ways to get rid of pregnancy. And something that I have not found in any Mm. research, though admittedly I have not spent my life devoted to this, I'll call up Andreas Johns later, is that Baba Yaga 
uh, as a child-eating hag uh, who rides around in a mortar and pestle seems to me to have some attributes uh, that could be like, you know, let's call it abortion provider coding. Especially the mortar and pestle, I feel like mm. it's the kind of witchcraft thing of a domestic item being used to do magics. And it's kind of funny and cute, but something about that to me does say kind of like she knew how to muddle up some herbs. You know what I'm saying? That's an interesting theory. I, like, I don't like um, people's theories, but I'm making up my own theory. It's okay. It's a historic. No, it, like, yeah, it's it's interpretive, which I think is really important. But it's interesting you bring that up because that reaching back in my mind, there was this study into the kind of symbol of the broom, and it was particularly focused on new england america and also um england ireland scotland wales and uh there's a lot of evidence that not only were these people with you know with knowledge about herbs creating abortives they were also creating concoctions no con yeah concoctions for sexual pleasure and there was specifically a lot of evidence that um women left alone in the home uh, they would take phallic objects around the house, particularly well-made heirlooms, ones that they would that would, um, you know, be sturdy and and I guess relatively safe to use, such as the broom. And they would rub um, these concoctions on the broom and then use them to masturbate. But a lot of these had things like nightshade in them, which created a sensation of rising. So one of the, the first women to be arrested for witchcraft in Ireland was a woman named Alice Keitler. She was found leaping around the room pretending to fly with a broom between her legs and it scandalised people. She, she ended up surviving. Her handmaid was not so lucky. But we believe one of the reasons the broom is a symbol of witchcraft, as well as people flying on brooms, is that uh, early, back in the day, people used to genuinely kind of get high, get high masturbating with their broomsticks well, that's fascinating because that's effectively just a yeah. fancy lube one of those tingly lubes um yeah pretty it's much interesting that i mean it's the story of womankind isn't it we don't have the the sex ed to know that dildos were a thing literally thousands of years bc so women have to mend and make do um, mm. Men in particular analyzing witchcraft are often uh, obsessed with the idea of the broom as a phallic symbol, uh, which we have oh, kind of we two go. main um, readings of Baba Yaga uh, to discuss today, one of which is from the Freudian model and one of which is oh, uh, more of a feminist perspective. And I think... yeah. I think we need to really caveat the Freudian model that it oh, is let me pretty my caveat. Fi had time travel abilities. I, as a historian, I have daydreamed of many of things that I may do with these time travel abilities. I would say that one of the things that I would do first um, is I would go back in time and I would fight Sigmund Freud with my fist. And I would win because he's a little bitch. And he is... So obsessed with genitalia. He's very gender essentialist in a way that is not conducive to modern thinking about uh, sex and gender. Because obviously your genitals have no bearing on your gender at all. Oh my god, absolutely. And Freud's whole way of thinking is just... Exhaustingly stupid. Yeah, it's so frustrating to read. And I can accept that maybe he inspired people that have much more like healthy ideas of psychology but like he also inspired a bunch of people who have really shitty ideas about psychology exactly here's the quote i want to go to 
In her negative stance as a villain in male-centred adult tales, Baba Yaga decapitates, gouges out eyes, and turns men into oh, stone. In all of these actions, in Freudian terms, threaten male identity and can be seen as symbolic castration. Really? <laughs> we mentioned this we mentioned this last week about heads being chopped off. Yeah. Men are obsessed with castration. You cut off anything of a man's and he'll be like, my penis. I mean obviously a cis man. Yeah. A cis white straight man. <laughs> the ultimate boogeyman. There's a man named Giza Rohan. Mm. I mean I hope he's a man. Uh, his writing is that many of Baba Yaga's traditional attributes are phallic and that she is a phallic mother. Uh, she wields a pestle and broom. Uh, she has a bony leg and a large nose and a giant iron tooth, uh, which are all penis. Good Lord. Somehow. All of these things. You own a broom? Penis. You have teeth? Penis. Bones? Sounds like boner. All right, back to penis jail. Oh, dear. Um, so uh, ultimately, a lot of this is just kind of this Freudian gender essentialist interpretation of far more complex symbols. I mean, not to be like sometimes a lighthouse is just a lighthouse, but sometimes a lighthouse is something interesting that's not a penis. Yes. Like an actual snake. Sometimes a, a skeleton leg is just a skeleton leg. And I, I won't deny the fact that perhaps, you know, much like Shakespeare does, Sometimes these peasants be making dick jokes. Dick jokes are important. Yeah. But uh, that does not necessarily mean that you need to so fervently harrow home the idea that Baba Yaga is, can or can only be read as uh, a symbol of castration anxiety. That just seems... It gets so much better than that, Emma. Mm. It's not about castration anxiety. Because you know what castration anxiety is really about? What? How horrifying it would be if you didn't have a Oh, penis, my if God. If you had something like a vagina. Freud, getting a quote from Freud himself, and this is actually about Medusa. Ah! So you'll enjoy this. I'm so angry, Bonnie. The snakes that form Medusa's hair are derived from the castration oh complex. God. It's a remarkable fact that, however frightening they may be in themselves, they nevertheless serve actually as a mitigating of the mm. horror. They replace the penis, the absence of which is the true cause of horror. I had to read this last year for my honours degree, every interpretation of Medusa. Freud, shut up. Freud, shut the fuck up. But they're looking for penises everywhere. Is it because they see a lighthouse and it's not a penis? Scarier. They're like, oh god, no penis. And I appreciate we've already said this is gender essentialist, but Freud, there are women with penises. There are men with vaginas. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Look, ultimately, you know what I want to take away from this? If Baba Yaga is going to be coded in a way that is essentialistly masculine, Perhaps we can be comforted in the knowledge that Baba Yaga is a trans ally. Trans ally Baba Yaga. You were saying earlier uh, that uh, Baba Yaga, especially in Soviet era films, was portrayed by the same man, but often by a man general. Which is just like casual transphobia in the idea that a woman that is portrayed by a male actor is horrifying and ugly, and that's just kind of a generally pretty common transphobic idea yeah. that masculine qualities in a woman are humorous. As um, much as Georgie Milliard has become sort of the pop cultural face of Baba Yaga, he's punching down. And his Baba Yaga is grotesque and evil and quite comedic as well. She's an idiot. Mm. Um, 
just want to run back to you. Obviously, I'm not implying that monstrous qualities are in any way tied to um, trans identity, but trans ally Baba Yaga. Yes. So the, in part of the villainization of older women in society, most of it comes from the patriarchy. The patriarchy does not like old women, even though they do are useful, not just useful, but important, like their own person. Mm. Uh, and one of the reasons they are repulsed by them is that they are not sexually attracted to them and that they are not sexually viable. They do not bear children anymore. Which is maddening to me because, like, there are so many people in the world that are not fertile and then they are no more or less valuable to society because of their fertility status. And the idea that uh, womanhood or desirability or there is some kind of inherent virtue to um, fertility and the ability to bear young is a really insidious and harmful idea because there are many women who cannot have children, either it's because they don't have the right parts or the parts that they have don't work properly, or, or the idea that they have to work properly is to bear a child in them, or the idea that it's a woman's mm. purpose in life to have children if they don't want to. All of these ideas are really toxic and harmful. And you don't just see this in kind of the way that trans women are treated, um, but also in kind of very mainstream things like in the latest, not the latest, but old Avengers film where the idea that Natasha Romanoff is a monster um, because oh, she can never have children. I was literally just thinking of that. Mm. It's so common that Joss Whedon thinks that it's hip and trendy. Um, but it makes me so grumpy. In this chicken leg house, we support all our sisters. I know, and if Baba Yaga wanted a child, she would just go out and steal one. And you can too. <laughs> Emma, talk about the wool. Okay, um, sliding from trans LA Baba Yaga, I want to talk about some of the contemporary empowering interpretations of Baba Yaga. Now, and this is actually getting old now, but in the 90s, uh, there was a Jungian psychologist called Clarissa Pinkola Estes, and she published a book called Women Who Run With The Wolves. It is an incredible book if you haven't read it. It's now almost considered a little bit daggy to love it by some people. It was a massive phase, I guess, in the 90s. I read it recently, so I'm obviously going through that like, oh my god, this is the most amazing thing I've ever read kind of thing. to chokers in the 90s, like it's an inappropriate necklace mm -hmm. for a child and now you're in your 20s and you can wear chokers and everyone's like, ew, that's so 90s and you're like, I'm living my dream. <laughs> literally, that's literally me. Um, now, I brought up Cl Clarissa Pinkola Estes because her kind of thesis statement for this book is pretty similar to ours, which is that you can, almost like an archaeologist, you can delve through different figures and different stories and you can use them to find meaning in your life. You can use folklore from cultures all around the world to find a sense of self and empowerment and advice you might be missing in your life. Clarissa Pinkola Estes is a Jungian psychologist. As I mentioned, she's also a Latin American cantadora, which I believe it's kind of a cultural custodian of storytelling practices. Mm -hmm. So she traveled all around the world and she spoke to people from all different kind of walks of life and experiences and identities. And she collected folk stories. And then she uses Jungian psychology to kind of break down a couple of them and talk about what maybe we can learn from these stories, particularly if you're a woman. And she talks about Baba Yaga quite a lot, which made me really happy because I think it's a great example of how she can also be a, like a really um, 
you know, amazing figure. Psychologically speaking, Baba Yaga can represent the old hag, the wild woman, the instinctual self that we lack in modern life. And Clarissa Pinkola Estes talks about this old hag, wild woman quite a lot. She talks about lots of different cultures that have this sort of figure. Particularly, she talks about South American stories. And she talks about how a figure that digs up the bones and sings the bones to life and brings life back into things that are cold and dry and dead and uh, I think that's a figure that occurs actually in a lot of different cultures but it's this speaking psychologically it's this idea that if you reach out to kind of this taboo forbidden old crone like wild woman finding that part of you within yourself can actually sing kind of the bones of intuition and empowerment back into you. I just googled sing the bones to life because that sounded really cool and the first page of results are all about Hillsong Church. Oh god. Clarissa Pinkola Estes retells the story of um, Vasilasa the Fair. She describes the descent into the forest as representing a delving into her psyche. Um, And she says, we must set out into the woods to go find this scary woman, or else one day, as we are nodding down the street, a manhole cover will snap open and whoosh, we will be snatched by some unconscious thing that will throw us out like a rag. She says, Baba Yaga if you look at it from this perspective, this Jungian perspective is this fearsome, yes. She represents the power of annihilation and the power of the life force at the same time. And if you look at folk stories as initiation dramas, initiation dramas basically being psychological tools to help you kind of gain a better sense of self, Babiaga represents an instinctive nature in the guise of a witch. Like the word wild, the word witch has come to be understood as a pejorative, it's an insult. But long ago, it was something that's considered a praise. So a lot of monotheistic beliefs have overwhelmed these pantheistic ones and in doing so they've changed attitudes we had about wild and wise women. We've talked about that a little bit already really. Yeah everybody read my article. (laughs) The wildness of girlhood on Overland. Pinkola Estes believes that these wild and wise women they still hold sway within our psyches. They're a tool of healing. Basically the idea that if you've ever stuck your fingers in the dirt and had this like sudden wave of Yes, I am one with nature. I have these skills. Have you ever had that happen to you, Bonnie? Yes, literally all the time. Yes. When I get depressed, sometimes I go out into the garden and touch the dirt, and then I'm like, for all hobbits share love of things that grow. And that feels like yes, that's literally it. So embracing Baba Yaga in this kind of psychological way, seeing her tasks as a, a test to kind of get in touch with a, a deeper psychology within yourself basically means to embrace Baba Yaga-like qualities as a positive thing. So now, there was a more modern interpretation of, uh, well, not a mo- modern reclamation of Baba Yaga you wanted to talk about as well. Yeah. So there's this amazing poet called Taisia Kitaiskaya, and she wrote a book called Ask Baba Yaga. And Ask Baba Yaga completely demonstrates everything Pinkola Estes just said. She's a poet, um, and she published this little book pretty recently and in it she kind of air quotes channels Baba Yaga and she's basically then writes as Baba Yaga or Baba Yaga writes through her as an agony aunt. So for a couple of years you'd send Taisia questions and Baba Yaga would reply and she published this beautiful little book where she's got these really beautiful poetic pieces of advice for problems people around the world were having and I, I really like the idea that you can use a character like Baba Yaga as a tool to channel answers through if that makes sense yeah, like o- old lady wisdom she suffers no fools as i said earlier she suffers and no fools unless she is to suffer them in a delicious sauce and eat them 
Yum, yum, yum. And I don't know, I just think this kind of stuff is really neat. And Taisia has this quote in the introduction to her book, which she says, Indifferent and immortal, Baba offers no comforting pats on the back, but she can extend, with her gnarled, clawed hand, a glowing skull lantern. Aww. If you keep your nerve, that eerie light might just guide you through. So, I think our lesson for the week is uh, don't eat people and support trans rights. Mm-hmm. Or do eat people and support But still support rights. trans rights. Yeah. That's the most important thing here. I think we've all learned something today. <laughs> Baba Yaga, trans ally. Did we have a sign-off? I don't remember. I love you all very much. And get out of here, Craig. Oh, yeah. Get out of here, Craig. Should we also thank Matt's oh, yeah. for the... Yeah. Before I before Craig gets out of here, Matt Sklitsky, thank you for the, the theme song and the audio advice that you've given us every day. You have won many Errol Awards. You've also won my heart. 